Solitaire Rose Novelcast, Do the Job, Part 7. Solitaire Rose Novelcast is where I, it's where I, your charming and delightful old Uncle Rat Bastard, that's right, Corey Strode, takes the novels he's written and turns them into audio podcasts. Do the Job is a mystery set in the world of 1980s professional wrestling. What you need to know. Lance Green is a former professional wrestler turned private investigator who's investigating the overdose death of one of his fellow wrestlers. His investigation has led him through meeting the people who'd known Mikey, the uh, person who overdosed, through the last few months of his life. And he's now at a large wrestling event in St. Paul, Minnesota, where they're doing a TV taping. This is for the largest of the wrestling companies at that time in the 80s. And that's what you need to know. Lance has been brought up to meet the boss because he has a few questions. The door opened. And there were about ten people in the room. It was dark and the room was filled with TV equipment. Brad was the one who opened the door and I was surprised at how big he was. I thought he was some little West Coast guy because he'd worked in TV production. But he was a full six feet minimum and looked as if he spent time in the gym. Not as much as one of the workers, but he made his three-piece suit look impressive. He was about my age and had a full head of gray hair that looked as if he'd been pulling it out all day. He was clearly Irish, and while he didn't have the ready complexion, he was pale and looked like he'd burst into flames if he was out in the sun too long. His eyes were light brown, and his cheekbones were that of a male model. I'm sure the women found him amazingly attractive, but for me, I'd wondered why he had a career behind the camera instead of in front of it. Hey, pal, he said, giving me a hearty handshake and a pat on the back as he came out of the room. You gave us a bit of a scare. I didn't know you'd be packing heat. Do all you private eyes pull guns all the time? There was a smile on his face, but it was clear that he was angry with me. This was a guy who was used to controlling every part of his world, and he felt challenged by someone who introduced a bit of uncontrolled chaos into it. Not at all, Mr. Flannery, I said, looking as humble as I could be. I had my office broken into last night by someone who I thought was in jail. He vowed to get even with me, and I don't think making a mess of my files was what he meant. Sounds like one of those detective novels, he said. There won't be any more trouble, will there? No, sir, I said with all deference. I don't even like carrying the thing, but I need to be safe. That's not why I'm here, and I know you don't have a lot of time. We've got some time, he said. The crowd's getting more nachos and beer, and we've got videos playing for the next half hour so they don't get burned out. I also wanted to thank you for looking into Mikey's death. It's a damn shame. He had an amazing mind. He would have done good work with you, I said. Did you talk to him the last couple of days he was with us? Of course. He wasn't on the payroll yet, but he was already helping me with the show. He was sending me notes on the guys he was scouting on tapes, and he didn't have a fax machine yet, so he'd just call and tell me what he thought. He also told me that that redhead you scared was ready to jump. 
Plenty's a hell of a worker, I said. And easy on the eyes. I've always had a thing for redheads. Must be the Irish in me. I gotta change her name, though. Can't copyright a name that she got from a James Bond movie. Thinking of calling her Red Tyler and going with the whole Irish brawler thing. She's tough in the ring, and I think she'll make the fans excited about women's wrestling. But you aren't here to talk about business, he said finally. It's a good thing we weren't there to talk business. Because of that, I didn't bring up the fact that he was also having her drop the belt in the garbage as a fuck you to Dan. And even though I wasn't a traditionalist, I did think it was a pretty classless thing to do. Especially when you were going to change your name and persona at the same time. Back in my day, guys would jump from one federation to another all the time. They'd get tired of working for a promoter, thought they could make more money elsewhere, or just wanted to change the scenery. They'd call another promoter and work out a deal. It was unsaid, but you would always do the job when you left, making the worker who was staying look strong. Who knows, you might have to go back to that territory and work again at some point. I just wanted to know about your relationship with Mikey, I said. How did you find out about him? That's easy. Half the guys who are good in the ring work with him at some point or another. He taught most of them, and the rest he helped get better. I can't tell you how many people said that he and Eddie's school in the barn was the best place to learn how to wrestle. I'm smart enough to know I don't know everything. I know TV, so I handle that. And the wrestling is something I don't know a lot about, so I'm bringing in people who know that world, know how to put on a good show. With us kicking up the touring, I figured he'd be a good guy to run one of the road crews. So I flew in, met with him and Eddie, told him I was scouting talent, which wasn't exactly a lie, and watched him put the new workers through their paces. They ran those guys through stuff a lot of my newer workers don't even know yet. Impressive stuff. I talked to them about what they do, how long they've done it, and what they'd do if they had a shitload of money to do what they wanted. Mikey talked a lot of pie-in-the-sky stuff, getting guys drug treatment, showing them how to invest their money, having the guys spend their time on the road learning how to put on a good match. He said with all the dead time on the road, we could put together some great shows that would draw even bigger houses. I like that kind of talk. He also gave me his don't-do-drugs speech he gives the workers, and it impressed me. He paused and shook his head. That's why it doesn't make sense to me. He was as passionate about that as anyone I've ever met. I have a lot of guys who are away from home for weeks at a time, and they have more money than they've ever had. So you have a drug problem, I said flatly. I don't know, but I'm guessing I do. Most of the workers go out and hit the local bars, which I'd do if I were their age and had that kind of money. But I've worked in television long enough to know that where there's money and no one's supervising, there are parties. And when there are parties, there are drugs. I'm starting to have problems with a couple of workers, and I'd have to be the dumbest person in the building not to know they're using whenever they get their hands on it. If the NFL can't keep their players off drugs, how am I supposed to? How'd you get along with Eddie, I asked. Eddie took the opportunity to cuss me out. I'm used to it. Hell, Giant Gomez did the same thing when I first talked to him about joining up with me. But I've learned these guys think you're an asshole until they start getting their checks. When they're used to getting their share of the gate from a 500-person house once a week, and you give them a check after they've been in front of 12,000 people every night and twice on Saturday for a week, then their talk about how I'm ruining the business stops. So you were going to hire Eddie, I asked, since that was the opposite of what I'd heard from Eddie and his wife. I figure I'd bring him in a little ways down the line after Mikey had worked with me for a while. Problem is, about a week before he was supposed to fly to New York, Mikey called me up and said no matter what I was thinking, I shouldn't hire Eddie. He wouldn't tell me why. He just said that Eddie wouldn't be able to help me with any of my problems. And you believed him, I asked? 
Figured he knew Eddie better than I did, he said. When was the last time you spoke to Mikey? The day he died. His wife dropped by the office and thanked me for hiring him. Gave me a bunch of paperwork that he needed to fill out. She said she took care of a lot of the business stuff for him, which happens a lot. He called an hour or so later, asked if she'd been by, and gave me some information on the wrestlers on some of the tapes I'd gave him. The guy had about five ideas for each of the workers he liked. He even said there were a few people we should take a look at in a couple of years. He was thinking that far ahead, I asked. Yeah, and he talked a lot about how I'm going to burn through a bunch of workers since I have them on all my TV shows. I know back in the old days when wrestling was in those smoky bingo halls and high school gyms, they'd trade talent so the audience never got completely sick of a worker. There was an always an influx of new talent. But with me becoming the big leads, I'd be burning through workers and I wouldn't be able to trade them away. He also had some ideas on how to keep the workers interesting that I liked. Guy always thought long term. And did he tell you why he thought Eddie would be a bad addition? Nope, he said as the door to the skybox opened and somebody motioned for him to come in. I have to go. These tapings are killer. One thing before you go. I saw some of your tapes and I am impressed. The night you turned heel, I thought that crowd was going to kill you. Most of the switches from face to heel that I see don't do anything for me. They seem forced. Yours was great. By the time you were done talking, I wanted to throw beer at you. Thanks, I said, amazed he'd actually looked into my past in the business. This was a guy who didn't let any detail past him. I was lucky to get out of the building in one piece that night. We'd teased it for a while after I got the belt, since Dan doesn't like babyface champions, but when we actually pulled the trigger, I don't think anyone in the crowd knew it was coming. That's the hardest thing, I've found. You want to make sure that when it happens, the crowd understands it, but you don't want them to know it's coming. I didn't see any of the build. But what a payoff. You probably had him hanging from the rafters the next time you ran the building. It was a hell of a house that night, I said. Now I know your neck won't let you get in the ring anymore, but have you ever thought about being a manager, he said. We tried that, I said, remembering the run that Kelly was still so mad about. And if the manager can't take a bump, there's really no point. The crowd has to see the manager get beat up at some point, or the baby faces never get their payoff. You see, I could do it differently, he said. I've got a guy working the manager gimmick for me, and he doesn't take any bumps since he screwed up his back a few years ago. He just gets smacked around once in a while, and then only on TV. I still know stuntmen, and we could put together a rig so you'd be safe as houses. Before I could answer, he looked me over and said, You're in a nice suit today. A bit wrinkled and worn, but a nice suit. You made decent money back with Dan because you were his top attraction, but now you're running a small detective agency. I don't know how much it pays, but I routinely write five- and six-figure checks for guys when they finish up a run on the road. Can you really turn that kind of money down? I thought about it. To me, it felt like forever, but it was pretty clear when I answered that Brad thought I was answering pretty fast. I can't, and it's not just because of my neck. Well, it's my neck, but more that Katie, who runs the business with me, she'd leave me. She said if I ever got back in the ring, we were done. I was nearly crippled once because of a mistake in the ring. Then again, I was too stupid to know I shouldn't be there. I'm not saying I wouldn't like the money, but I'm pretty happy where I am. I've seen Katie, he said. She was working the same time you were. Hell of a woman. Plenty talked about her when I asked about you. She said you wouldn't come back, and I didn't believe her. Now I have to give her an even bigger bonus. He saw the confused look on my face and said, I better double or nothing against your bonus I could get you back in the ring. I'll be honest, most of the time when I just mention a five-figure check, I found most everyone in the business forgets their long-held moral convictions. 
Normally I would too, I said, but I think I do important work from time to time. And you got a woman worth going home to, he said. I know what you mean. My wife doesn't want me on the road, which is why I'm hiring guys like Mikey. I have to be at TV tapings, but for house shows, I don't see why some outsider like me needs to be around to make sure guys do what I paid them to do. Why are you taping so many matches in one day, I asked, having nothing to do with the case. I started in game shows, and we'd tape a whole week in a single day. Stars would show up with five sets of clothes, and we'd just tape all day. And later that week, we'd do the same thing. That way, we'd put together two weeks of TV in two days, and we could play with it and edit it any way we wanted. On a couple of them, we'd just tape a whole month and a week once we got everything smoothed out. Thought it was a good way to do TV for wrestling. I nodded and the door opened again. He turned and said, Damn it, you don't need me for the sound levels, Tommy. Give me a minute here. That's okay, I said. I think I have everything I need. Nancy's paying you out of Mikey's life insurance, I'm guessing, he said. Before I could answer, he said, Yeah, I know you can't tell me. Client confidentiality and all that. I want you to send the bill to me. I've already worked out something with Nancy and he cut me off. Look, Mikey was an employee and if he overdosed like the cops said, I'm Madonna. You send me the bill and you tell her you're doing it pro bono. Just make sure you get the truth. Okay, pal? I will, sir, I said. Yeah, that's the thing I love about the business. You guys have all your rules and tradition. You always treat people with respect, even if you're a heel. In TV, I get treated like shit by an extra who makes 50 bucks a day, and the stars think I'm the most worthless piece of shit on the planet. You guys, you know it's a good idea to keep the boss happy, while the stars are all confused why they can't get a call back when they're 15 minutes in the spotlights up. And with that, he went back in the skybox, and I was left in the hallway with the security guard, who hadn't been there a minute ago. That guy is good, I said to no one in particular. Followed the security guard down the stairs. Chapter 5 The next day I was sitting in my car across the street from Clint Endicott's storefront. He had a big office in a downtown tower, but he spent most of his time in his office in Uptown, a block off Hennepin. The office in the tower was when he needed a place to impress people. And most of the time he had a couple of nice secretaries and other bail bondsmen there. The office was when he was working on things that needed a lower profile. The Mark Ivey case had to be a low profile. There was no way Ivey could have made bail through legitimate means with his record. On top of that, he was still on parole, so I knew something shitty was happening. I'd been to Endicott's 13th floor office and checked to see if he was there. He'd been there for part of the morning, but left before lunch. I followed him here, which meant he was about to do some real business. Clint could wear a suit well, but what was inside that suit wasn't a whole lot to look at. He was in his mid-forties, and what was left of his hair was gray. He'd put on the kind of weight you get from long lunches, steak dinners, and fine scotch. He wouldn't know the inside of a gym if you gave him a tour. His face was puffy, and his features had a roundness to them that many would be working on a heart attack over the next few years. The world would be a better place if he had that heart attack, if not for the fact that guys like him were a hydra. Cut off one, and five more show up to take their place, and they usually don't even attempt to have the small veneer of class that he liked to show. His second office was a tiny little storefront that had been a video store, a computer repair store, and a used bookstore in the last ten years. It was on a street corner, most of the other building around it were houses or former businesses that had become houses. There was one that looked like some strange 60s design that used to be a dentist's office someone had remodeled into a house. I wondered if they kept the waiting room and the dentistry chairs every time I saw it. 
The street had a few trees on it. The houses were well-maintained, mostly modest one- or two-story buildings. The whole area was in a funk over the last few years with the economy taking a dump in the early 80s. Having a brief recovery if you happen to already be rich. And then the stock market collapsed again, so the money people'd won in that crap game was gone. There was also a run of savings and loan failures I didn't even begin to understand, other than it meant a lot of people were trying to figure out just who the hell owned their mortgage and where they should send their payment to. There were a few for sale signs in the front of some of the houses, meaning that people in them had either given up trying or had figured out how to get a better job so they could move out to the suburbs that were migrating toward my old farmhouse. He'd bought it up, put a small sign in the window, but Clint's business was one where if you needed to be bailed out by someone like him, you already knew. He specialized in people who were connected, either to drugs or worse. I'd never dealt with him directly, but I'd had to work with people in his circle from time to time. So I'm betting he knew who I was, even without the years in the wrestling ring. Still, I was watching his joint the way I'd been taught by a friend of mine in the police force. I was in the back seat of my car, down the street far enough where he couldn't see me, with something to listen to so that I could focus all of my attention on him. I'd been waiting for a couple hours and watched. He'd had three visitors, including one guy I'd seen on TV as being arrested for federal obscenity charges. I didn't remember his name, but I remember seeing him brought into a courthouse as a news anchor talked about how he owned a chain of legitimate video stores and a few that sold the kind of videos that men like and a couple more scammy strip joints. I figured it had to be an election year because the federal prosecutor used a lot of words like morality and family values I'd heard in ads for the national right-wing candidate. I didn't pay much attention to that kind of thing even though I followed the news because there was always someone trying to get into power by stopping from people from doing the kind of things they enjoy. Used to be dancing, then drinking, then dirty books, then dirty magazines, now dirty videos. It was a lot like the wrestling business. They made someone into their heel so they could play babyface and then run the show all around the country, with neither side getting the upper hand or changing anything. They kept the voters running the polls like a bunch of marks waiting to see the evil heel get his. Just like wrestling, the money was in the chase. And I also noticed that while they nabbed this guy, there were four others just like him who didn't get raided, arrested, or shut down. When he left, a woman went in. She had to be someone's wife or girlfriend because she walked into his building in such a cloud of shame it was hard for me to look at her. She only stayed a half hour, so I wondered what she'd had to give up so that her no-good boyfriend or husband would be released from jail later that day. Finally, I saw what I wanted to see. He turned off the sign on the outside of his building and closed the curtains on his windows. I checked my watch. Only three o'clock. Must be nice to keep such short hours. But then anyone who says crime doesn't pay hasn't been following the news. I slipped out of my car and quickly got across the street so he couldn't see me if he was looking out the window. I moved down the sidewalk and slipped to the side of his small one-story building without seeing anyone else on the street. His building didn't have any trees around it, but I looked around and saw no one on the street, went behind the building, looking for a back door. In the back of the building was a single door, no windows, and a small parking lot made for about four cars. Only one of the parking spaces was being used, and his cherry-red sports car sat there, gleaming as if it had been washed earlier that day. There was a small dumpster that sat near the back door, and I decided it would be a decent place to hide behind and wait for Clint to come out. 
I didn't have to wait long, as he burst through the door, a huge briefcase in his hands and a handful of keys in the other. He turned to lock the door. I got up and got behind him before he could notice me. I grabbed the arm with the briefcase and squeezed on his wrist as hard as I could. He dropped the briefcase to the ground and I quickly twisted the arm behind him and pulled upward. In the ring, we'd call it an arm bar, and one of the secrets to it is we didn't twist as we wrenched it behind and pulled up. For Clint, I'd figure it needed to be a shoot, so when I pulled up, he yelped in pain. I think we should step back inside, I said in a low whisper. I don't have any money on me, he said, but you could take my wallet and the briefcase. It's very generous of you, Endicott, but what I want you don't have in your pockets. Inside. I won't ask again. And to emphasize my seriousness, I pulled upward again, could feel his knees buckle with the pain. All right, he hissed and unlocked the door. He dropped his keys in a frantic attempt to get inside. I pushed him into the building and kicked his keys away under his car. The last thing I wanted was for him to have any sort of advantage. He stumbled down the hallway the door opened into, and I followed, turning on the light he had probably just turned out. The hall was short and led to a main storefront where he had a nice desk, chairs, and a couch. It was obviously his office area. I could tell that he also had a reception area. There were a couple of doors on the sides of the hallway, making me think he had a bathroom and a file room. He turned around and looked as if he'd just eaten something made out of acid. I'll be honest. I forget how intimidating I can look. In wrestling, most of the guys are bigger than normal, even if we do exaggerate our height by a few inches and our weight by a few pounds, up or down, depending on the impression we want to make. However, I am a legitimate 6 foot 4 inches and weigh in at about 270 pounds, since I would still rather spend time in the gym than watching TV or playing cards. Whatever it is you want, just take it. I won't put up a fight, he said, still against the wall. I doubt that, I said with a grin that made him cower. Let's go down to your office and chat. What I want is information. If I get it, everything will be just fine. He slid down the hall, not turning his back on me, which made him think he must know a lot of people who'd shoot you in the back without telling you why. To me, that meant he needed to associate with a better class of people. When he got to his office, I was right behind him. I pointed to his seat as nicely as I could and said, Have a seat. Wait, aren't you supposed to tell me that? He didn't laugh at my joke. Instead, he sat down on the couch, which meant I had to either sit at his desk, which would be both uncomfortable and make him feel territorial, or on one of the chairs. I grabbed the nearest chair, turned it around, and sat on it backwards in case I needed to get up quickly. It may be a sh cliche that professional wrestlers use steel chairs as weapons, but since my gun was back in the safe, and had been ever since I drove to the office after meeting with Brad, I felt it would be a good idea to have something if things went south. So, I said, you don't know who I am. He shook his head, and I decided I wasn't going to get much out of him with the smart-ass persona I'd been using. Funny, they always seem to work in the books about private eyes, but like I said in the beginning, I tend to burst bubbles people have about me in the jobs I do. I would think that you would, since you bailed out a man who broke into my office two nights ago, I said. The recognition spread over his face, and he said, You're here about Ivy. Yes, I said. I have quite a few questions, but the biggest one is, how can a guy who's on parole get bail when he violated said parole? Innocent until proven guilty, he said, starting to relax a bit. I wasn't sure if I wanted him to do that, so I leaned forward. When you're on parole, you've already been convicted of something, so that's out the window. There are a few things that I already know, so correct me if I'm wrong. 
Whoever wanted him free has some political clout or a judge in his pocket. He said nothing, so I kept on. He also has to be dirty since you're involved. He started to say something in protest, and I held up a hand to stop him. Don't try to tell me that you're a misunderstood soul, a victim of circumstance, or anything else. I'm not stupid, and I've lived here my whole life. You're the guy the high-drawler drug runners and pimps use, and if you're very lucky, you get spillover from the people they work with above board. He looked irritated, and I continued. So why would a two-bit drug user like Ivy get your undivided attention on a Sunday morning when you would normally be in church procuring more business contracts? He was going through my files, which is also strange, since the last time I had the pleasure of his company, he said he wanted me dead. Care to enlighten me? He sat there and said nothing. I stood up rapidly just to watch him flinch and see if I still had him intimidated. He looked as if he was ready for me to throw the chair at him, and I walked over behind his desk. The desk had been a high-dollar one a few years ago, but now it looked like it had been moved by people who didn't give a shit too many times. On top of it was a Rolodex, one of those calendars you write appointments on that worked as a desk mat, and a couple pictures of Clint with people I probably should know in nice little frames. I pulled up one of the drawers and found it was locked. I remembered the sound of his keys skittering across the cheap blacktop behind the building, coming to a rest under his car. I didn't change my expression, but in my mind I was swearing like Katie after she'd dropped something. Guess not, I said. I smiled at him and grabbed the middle drawer of the desk and pulled. The lock might have been metal, but it was held in place by the wood around it, and a good hard pull broke it loose. The drawer was not nearly as neat as the rest of the office, or the top of the desk for that matter. There was a mess of pens, pencils, papers, business cards, and as I searched through it, he said, If you're as smart as you think you are, you'll know that the people I would have to answer to for telling you anything are a hell of a lot scarier than you are. I know that, I said, shuffling the papers around, hoping he'd shoved his work for the day in that drawer. But what you don't know is I don't much care about you in any way, shape, or form. You're less than nothing to me. You're an obstacle in my way. I just feel it's important to give you a chance to make things easier on both of us. There, toward the back of the desk drawer, I found it. Small gun, barely big enough to be considered a gun, but still it would fire bullets and cause damage. So it was what I expected. I'm guessing you don't have a permit for this, since they still have laws in this state against Saturday night specials, I said. I tossed the gun from one hand to the other. It was tiny in my hands. I wondered if I could get my index finger in the trigger comfortably and tried. It was a bit of a squeeze, but at least the damn thing didn't go off when I put my finger on the trigger. And the good thing about him is if you get hurt with it, what are you going to do? Call the police and tell them they shot you with your own illegal gun? Oh, that's right. You probably don't officially own the gun, do you? I moved over to the chair I'd been sitting on and sat down again, crossing my arms on the back of the chair and dangling the gun from my right finger. He was starting to get brave and glaring at me as I sat down. I think I beat round the bush long enough. You have two choices. You tell me you posted the bail for Ivy, or tell me where he is. Or? There is no or. At this point, you will tell me one of those two things. You need to decide which one it will be. I play a lot of poker, Mr. Green, and I'm calling your bluff. I was staring at him directly and gave a bit of a dramatic sigh. Before he could react, I fired the gun into the floor next to his foot without looking. My expression didn't change. I didn't flinch. I didn't react to the sound. I watched as he jumped and then saw how close the bullet had come. 
Holy shit, he shouted. So, I said, not changing my expression, which is it going to be? You're crazy. I did the same thing, but with his other foot. Hey, I said I'd never shot anyone. I never said I'd never shot near anyone. God damn it! Quit it! Quit it! Ivy's out in Waconia, he said, moving both of his feet up onto the couch. He gave me the details, and I thanked him by removing all the bullets from the gun, putting them in my pocket. Since it was a shitty little thing, I also bent the clip so it couldn't be reinserted in case he found the courage as I was leaving. I tossed the gun back on the desk and told him that if he was a good boy, he'd never see me again. I went out the front door, mostly so I could see if the shots had alerted anyone to anything going on inside. The street was quiet as empty as it had been when I went in, since once you get a few blocks off Hennepin, the people walking around tends to drop to zero. Add to that the fact that the gun barely had enough power to get through Clint's shitty shag carpet, and I figured I didn't have anything to worry about with someone calling the police and having them ask questions. Well, that and the fact that Clinton didn't want police coming around his office asking questions even when he was in trouble. I figured I'd bought about ten minutes to get my car before he started feeling brave again, so I got moving as fast as I could. It was about four in the afternoon, so I was immediately stuck in rush hour traffic. It wasn't as bad as the traffic in a city like Chicago or Los Angeles, but it wasn't great either. I crept along on the freeway at about 25 miles an hour until I got far enough out of the city I could get on a less busy highway. I still had music on in the car, only this time I was using the car radio and I had the classical station on. I needed to think through what my next step would be and start putting the pieces together. Sadly, Mikey would have to wait since I'd been able to confirm that Ivy was working for someone with some clout or Clint would have given them up without a fuss. I knew it was big when he didn't even hint to me that information could be bought. I tried to think through who I'd crossed in the last few months and came up blank. My clients over the last year or so had been mostly domestics. None of them were connected to anything big enough that Clint would be involved in, let alone be scared of. I saw a gas station at the side of the road as I kept mulling over what I could have done to make enemies in high places. They had a payphone in the exterior of the place, and I dialed a friend I'd made at the county office to find out who owned the place that Ivy was staying at. I was on hold for a while, and I was thankful that the chill I'd felt in the air a few nights ago was gone. It was a warm fall day, but the trees were giving up the last of their leaves to let me know that time before snow, sleet, and before zero wind chills was not going to be held off too much longer. When he got back on the phone, he said, Sorry it took a while, but it's in a couple of shell corporations. We got the records on them since he incorporated them here. He who, I asked. Hodge Johnson, he said. I felt the ground go wobbly under me and thanked him for his information. Hodge Johnson, who'd bankrolled my business, owned the apartment building that Ivy was holed up in. Pieces all fell together in my head, and I knew I'd been played for a sucker. The only questions were how long, who else was involved, and was there a way out of it. My mind was racing. I went back to the car to grab some change out of the cup holder. And there you go, part seven of Do the Job. Amazingly enough, two weeks after part six, uh, we are back on track here at Solitaire Rose Novelcast. We have a whole bunch of podcasts. We've got the, what I call the mothership, Crazy Comics and Stories. 
and that's at crazycomics.solitairerose.com. It's where myself and my friend Joe Ryder talk comics, um, shenanigans, uh, media, all sorts of other things. It's basically a comic book podcast. Head on over. We've been doing it for over 300 episodes, and it comes out every Monday. There's also Solitaire Rose Radio, which is a solo podcast by me, where I do interviews, um, series and review, um, history of comics, and uh, all sorts of other things. Anything that pops into my beanie little head. Then, uh, coming next week is a new episode of Bad Advice, the comedy podcast that I do with my friend Dan Moore. And that's at badadvice.solitairerose.com. People write in asking for advice, and we give them bad advice. Also, the web strip I do with Dan Moore, Worldwide News, is back. Um, you can head on over to worldwidenews.solitairerose.com and get caught up on it. It's a web strip that we've been doing for, I don't want to think about how long, but over 150 strips. And we're back doing about one or two a week until Dan gets all caught up. I want to thank you for listening. One thing you could do to support the podcast is visit our advertisers, and I've got them right here. That's right, here at the Solitaire Rose Radio Network, we have ads, and our first sponsor is me. That's right, your charming and delightful old Uncle Rap Bastard. I have my first book out with Dangerous Dan Moore. It's the first hundred strips of our online web strip, Worldwide News, the story of the lowest-rated cable news network. And you can get yourself a copy with commentary, with all sorts of extras, with uh, signatures and everything. Just email Dan over at lordshadowflame at gmail.com. Our top sponsor, who's been with us since day one, is DreamHost. DreamHost.com. You need yourself a website, and DreamHost.com is the number one web host in the whole known universe. Just head over to DreamHost.com, put in the code CRAZY, K-R-A-Y-Z, get $20 off your first year. How can you beat that? Our other sponsor is Graze, G-R-A-Z-E.com. Healthy snacks for a healthy lifestyle. Just head over to Gray's, put in the code C-O-R-Y-S-3-R-5-P. Your first and fifth box are free. You can get them weekly. You can get them bi-weekly. You can get them monthly. You just order a whole bunch of them. It's great stuff to keep you away from the vending machine at work. Now, if you would like to leave a comment for any of the podcasts that we do, we'd love those. Go ahead and email us at solitairerosenetwork at gmail.com or you can call 952-856-0519. Operators are standing by. Okay, it's just a place that will record your calls, but we'll play them on the air. We'll answer your questions. We love getting feedback. Tell us what you think. Ask a question. Suggest a topic. Be a guest. Send us your stuff. Network at gmail.com. If you would like to advertise on any of the Solitaire Rose radio shows, you can. Just email us at solitairerosenetwork at gmail.com. Subject advertising. Thanks. The other thing you can do to support the podcast is spread the word. Tell everyone you know. Give us a good review on iTunes. Well, if you like the show, don't lie. I mean, don't lie. If you like the show, give us a good review on iTunes. Um, tell people. Uh, spread the word. The more people who listen, the more popular it is, the better it is for all of us, because um, I, I, I want people to listen to these episodes. We will be back in two weeks. That's right. Two weeks. With the next episode of Solitaire Rose Novelcast, Do the Job.